Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Can being green also produce green money, that is? This week, we're talking with Jessica Turner, president of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, a coalition of outdoor recreation associations and organizations. And in this role, she helps advance the outdoor recreation economy and help with important conservation efforts. We talk about how our desire to connect with the outdoors can also help the planet and the economy. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. I, I, I'm really excited about, uh, about this episode because um, it is about really the core of what we talk about at ACC, right? This idea that you can conserve the planet, you can protect the planet, but you can also protect you know, economic development and you can make money. And these things are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist. Um, and so really excited to have you on to talk about that. But first, I always like to dive into the background of our guests. So tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and, and how you got into your position with, um, with the Recreation Roundtable. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I probably started, I guess, at the core of, of you know, conservation in grad school, starting in American government and really interested in that connection. Um, but my first day on the job with the Bureau of Land Management, I was looking at energy development on BLM lands. And um, it was a step, uh, you know, an internship, basically. It was actually President Obama's first day in office. And as we all know now, um, you know, there's not really political appointees in these places the first couple days. And so there was really no one in the secretary's wing. I was this young person without a computer. I started making lists for them. They just need help with a few things. And um, it actually turned into four years working for the secretary um, on all things public lands, which included the BP oil spill, which included America's Great Outdoors, which included um, wild horses and burrows and, you know, everything uh, you can imagine. So it was an awesome place to get my start on what the Department of Interior and what our public lands and waters really do, what they're responsible for. It is so incredible um, that we have these public lands and it is also so complicated. And from there, I really took an interest on the business side and the connection of people to places. And I thought that was the most important thing. Um, and was lucky enough to get a start uh, starting a lobby shop for the Outdoor Industry Association, which represented 1,200 gear, apparel, and equipment manufacturers like Patagonia and REI and Orvis. Um, and from there, was appointed as the first president of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable just about five years ago. And um, that has been just another tremendous kind of learning curve on all things connected to business and, and conservation and um, kind of the future of how we're going to get people outside. So when did the interest in, in government and sort of that government relations, government work, when did that start before you got uh, to, the, uh, to the Bureau? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I went to Georgetown for government uh, and undergrad and then continued it in grad school. I think I always I was, you know, student body president. I was always interested in those types of things. And mostly, you know, on the elected side, I think I always saw myself as someone who would run for office. And then once I got to see what that looked like up close and personal, I will never do that. Yeah. Um, and now I know, I think, how to get the wheels in motion from the private sector side and, and how important all those things are. I, I've seen it from government, obviously. I actually interned on the Hill for congressmen, so from the Hill side, from the agency side. 
Um, I've seen it from the nonprofit perspective and now from the business perspective. And it takes all of those different facets, you know, to really make the wheels turn. And I've been lucky to see, um, you know, how each of those levers can really be pulled for good. I imagine in a position like you're t you mentioned the BP oil spill, and I remember how like just that captured national attention, a big national controversy. Um, what kind of lessons do you learn when you're in a place like the BLM and you're seeing these sort of crises or the, these major, uh, you know, major challenges happening? Like, like I imagine you grow a thick skin, you grow patience, but what were kind of the big lessons that you took away from your time there? Honestly, and this, um, maybe I've never explained it succinctly, but I think about it a lot. I think if there's one word that I took from this and that really changed me, it moderated me. Um, my opinions, uh, it really politically moderated me at a time where I was um, pretty fresh out of college, thought I knew everything. Um, and then you see something like that happen. You see the people that come to the table every day, the CEOs of these oil companies coming every day um, to the table, using their resources to stop a spill that they did, were not responsible for, <laughs> you know, most of them. You see the conservation organizations that came to the table to help. You see the people in politics, Republican and Democrat, that came to the table and helped. And I think that showed me that I always wanted to be in the room. Um, I wanted to be in the room doing good things. And you can be Democrat, Republican. You can be conservation business. You can even be an oil and gas company. And um, that wasn't a perspective I had seen before. But the people who stopped that spill and stopped the animals and the economic, you know, catastrophe, it, it was it was all of those people coming together and it, it took all of that. And, and I think the um, common theme at that time was, you know, the oil companies are bad. The conservation companies are good. The administration's not doing everything. You know, everyone had their perspective. But unless you were in the room, you didn't realize everyone there was was trying their hardest to do the right thing. And that's how we were able to accomplish, you know, getting it getting it fixed. And, and it's interesting, too, because that was a, a, a period of time when our politics on a national scale, we're becoming more divisive, right? And so that's really interesting that it moderated you and, and it showed you like there, there's a lot more that we don't maybe see behind the scenes of people with, as you mentioned, like good intentions, not necessarily their fault, but nonetheless coming together. Um, so totally. that's- I, And it stayed with me. I think that DC and where things get done are- 100% the most moderate places on earth, you know, and yeah. I think, you know, I was just at the Heartland Summit in Arkansas. Those were really moderate conversations. We had Republican mayors and Democrat mayors. And I mean, sometimes you're even in the Midwest and people don't even have a political affiliation with their, you know, yeah. mayors or governors. They're, they're moderate. There's just um, an election system that I think pulls us apart with the um, with the way that we create our primary candidates. And I think that there's issues like oil and gas and conservation, things like that, that pull people apart. But when you get to the brass tactics of what it takes to get something done, I've never seen a good idea, a good policy, good decision be made without both sides at the table. Yeah, that could be a whole podcast episode on that. But I, I, know. I, I really, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I could go on. No, on it's on. fascinating. I, I I appreciate your perspective about that. But take us a little. Take us now to. Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, you, you mentioned you're, you were the first or you are the first president of it. Um, why? Well, give us first the, the intro of what the roundtable does, uh, but also why it was founded. What, what was the problem that it seeks to solve? Yeah, so I think they, they're, they're really connected. What 
we realized as an industry about six years ago when we got the first ever um, Department of Commerce data showing that we were, I don't remember what we were then. Today, we're an $862 billion industry. The CEOs of all the trade associations started coming together and saying, wait, this is only when we are all together. This is when skiing is next to snowboarding is next to hiking and biking and hunting and fishing. This isn't just one industry. How do we show up as that industry? How do we show up as this massive economic power? Um, what if we got our heads together around some really important things? And so um, CEO, CEOs, all the trade associations came together, um, had a like couple day strategic session in D.C., formed ORR, um, and really around access and infrastructure. At that time, it was before we'd had GAOA or all these recent investments and infrastructure was becoming such an issue for people um, having good experiences in the outdoors and, of course, access to the outdoors, you know, always, always being an issue. And so formed ORR on those premises. And since then, we've brought together over 35 national associations. Um, now, it, well, now it's probably over 45 um, state recreation directors, big nonprofits, big businesses to uh, focus on what we all agree on, that 99% of things that it doesn't matter if you're on a snowmobile or on skis, you are like going in the same direction. We've been able to accomplish a ton with that. And it's just been a really amazing space to not focus on what divides us as a recreation community because there's, of course, those trailhead conflicts between the e-bikes and the horses and and they're legit. You know, there's real things happening there. But if we have more opportunities to get outside, if there's more places, if there's better managed public lands and waters, I don't think we're going to have those conflicts as much. And so we all come together around, you know, that great idea. Yeah. And, and going back to what we what I said at the beginning was this um, for some people, what seems like a conflict, right? We have industry, um, and I'm not saying that this is, you know, my view, but it is a view that I've seen that outdoor recreation can uh, can exploit our natural spaces. It can take, you know, it, it can it can derive a profit at the expense of our of our outdoor spaces. But I, I think what people don't often realize, and something that we've talked about on this show, something that I'm really passionate about. Um, when it comes to, and this is the background that I know, when it comes to, you know, um, hunters and anglers, right? Some of the biggest contributors to wildlife conservation, outdoor recreation, some of the biggest contributors to preserving our, our natural areas. And so help us paint the picture. Uh, and I know there's a lot of detail involved in this, but help us paint the picture of what all goes into making those two things work together getting a profit, having, you know, economic contributions, but also ensuring that our, our, our nature and our natural areas remain uh, pristine. Yeah, I mean, I really struggle with this one because I think everything exploits our natural resources. The house you're in, the parking lot I just parked at, the, the trains, the planes, the cars. So the, the idea that people going out and enjoying it is any worse than those things, I would argue it's not. Um, and I would argue the intangible impacts of that are that we have lifelong conservationists. We have lifelong people who are going to protect these places, save these places, enjoy these places, want to pass them down to their kids and their grandkids. And then, as you pointed out, the tangible is there's a real economic engine. Like I mentioned, we're an $862 billion industry. We employ 4.5 million Americans. It's 2% of the GDP, 3.3% of all U.S. employees. So it's real money and real jobs and real communities depend on this. And then we also contribute to Dingle Johnson and Pittman Robertson and 
in two in 2023, Dingle Johnson appropriated $424 million. Pittman Robertson, $1.2 billion. Um, and you know, that doesn't count the sport fish restoration boating fish tax that we pay on, the recreation trails program that our off-highway vehicles pay for. So we are paying and paying in. I also you know, besides just the hunt and fish side, which is really key, and the North American conservation model is one of the best in the entire world, um, most of the outdoor brands, founders, you know, are, you're not really in it for the money <laughs> to begin with, but okay. um, they're the original conservationists. They're doing it because they, they were outside, they saw a need, they could create it, clean it cleaner, better, lighter, you know, uh, more sustainably. And that's why they're in this business. And so um, I think we're all trying to have the smallest impact we can on our public lands and waters and good management and um, defining areas where recreation um, is a great use, where recreation might not be an okay use, understanding those things. I think that's all part of this very delicate process um, and why, you know, there's so many uh, of my members who are interested in policy because we want to seat at the table in um, ensuring that people can participate in these activities that create lifelong, you know, enthusiasts and be sure that we're, you know, doing it in a sustainable way so that future generations can have the opportunity to be lifelong enthusiasts. And so I think it all goes hand in glove, but I, I do struggle with, um, of course, there's an impact on record. I mean, humans have the greatest impact of any species in the world on everything we do. I, I fail to, um, you know, by that us, you know, skiing or hiking or ATVing or e-biking where it's appropriate and managed for is any more impactful than anything else we do in our daily lives. <laughs> yeah, I, I think back to some of the, the, the stories that we use often, but, you know, going to, to Midland, right, uh, where they drill for oil and meeting the people who do that. Um, these are people from the area, right? These are people who this is their home. They, they, they take, obviously, there is a human impact of doing that, but they take great pride in the, the efforts that they have to minimize that impact, to conserve the land, to be good stewards of their land. And, and similarly, with outdoor recreation, um, particularly when you go to some of these more remote places or, you know, you're going out to the national parks, you're going out to these ski resort towns or things like that. These are people who grew up in that area. They love that area. And they're just trying to share that area with the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Uh, but they also want to make sure that it sticks around for, for, for future generations. Um, and, and so I, I agree. That is helpful context to remember that um, the people behind these ventures are usually come from a place of having been connected, uh, you know, to the, yeah, to the land. Yeah, I think even... You know, even that, you know, people were always on the land, right, for for much longer than we've been here. You know, um, indigenous communities were on the land. And so I, I think one of the concepts that I, you know, just think about a lot is that we always feel it's like us versus nature or nature versus man. Or, and it's like we we were a, we originally lived among the land. We lived on the land. We, and so we have you know, since been, you know, in, industrialized and taken, you know, our, our lives aren't connected with it anymore. And a reconnection with nature and the land is like, in, you know, can only help, can only help everything. Once you realize your impact, you want to have less of an impact. Once you realize that that great gear and equipment you created 
gets more people outside, you want to manage those people better and say, all right, maybe there's some days that are really important for a certain bird or species, you know, for mating or, um, you know, habitat. I think we'd all agree, like, let's figure that out. Um, and what ORR is trying to do is make that pie bigger of recreation opportunities so we're not fighting over those slices so that if it does come, that there's a place that needs to be closed for a certain reason, there's still access, you know, nearby for that same activity. Yeah. One of the the reasons why I have such appreciation for the outdoor recreation community and, and, and all the different things that fall under that is because I think that particularly today, when people are stressed, they're overwhelmed, they have just so much coming at them, um, getting out into nature and being able to connect with nature in whatever way you want. For some people, that's just like, you know, I'm going to drink a margarita on the patio and like, that's my, my outdoor time, but whatever that is, uh, it, it's so important for mental health and mental, uh, clarity. Um, and I don't know if you get this, but, but being someone who works at a conservation organization, it doesn't always work for me, uh, to clear my mind by going outdoors because that triggers me to think more about work. I don't know if that's something that you have. Um, but talk about like <laughs> talk about the benefit that you get from being out in nature and, and, and why it's so important for people to be able to connect uh, with our natural environment and, and sort of the benefit that that you um, that, that, that y'all help promote. Well, you know, I've I've lived in the city uh, uh, for past 20 years, I think, you know, so um, my connection with nature is that close to home, a run, you know, I used to be running them all run to um the river the potomac like anything that could get me trees and water i i was a new person and, and it needs to happen every day i'm pretty religious about it um even in my own you know community it's like a walk around um the, the neighborhood that has some trees and some birds and if i see a bunny it's like okay this is it but then um you know now having kids two little kids i just see the wonder the excitement the um complete um, changing a personality. We're having a bad day. We go for a hike, you know, nearby by park, the whole day turns around. Um, so there is something there that I can see in, you know, a six month old and a two and a half year old that, you know, we probably fail to see in ourselves, in ourselves, but it's the same impact. I'm, I'm a little more impacted by water. There's something about water that's really important to me. I know some of my friends, it's the mountains, some people, it's the prairie, like we've all got our own thing, but there, there's great studies about just awe, just being in awe of nature, seeing the stars, seeing a mountain that's bigger than you, seeing the river flowing fast. It creates a sense of um, how small we are. It makes you, you know, of course, mental and physical. You I mean, that's a no brainer, right? We've seen a lot of studies on that, the exercise, the vitamin D, um, the clearing of the head. But there's this really cool thing about, uh, about society, being a better society, being a better person when you're outside because you understand you're small, your issues are small. We're part of something bigger having an appreciation for that makes you a, a better person in society. And so I think these studies are really just beginning. And it's kind of sad we have to quantify all of this in order to move the needle. But if that's where we are, I'm excited to see more data. There, there's two things I want to link together. Um, and, and that is, you know, during COVID, uh, we saw a lot of people go outdoors more, which was awesome. Uh, in, many, in many ways, though, like national parks became overcrowded and there was this big strain on resources. Um, we did have passage and you mentioned it earlier of the Great American Outdoors Act, one of the, the you know the, the biggest conservation 
uh, legislation in our lifetime. Um, so I have two questions. The first is from an industry perspective, um, I, I think we pretty much know what we saw during COVID. Again, there was an uptick in outdoor recreation and, and people that was a way for them to, to have any sort of recreation. What has it been like now that we're a few years removed from it? That's the first question. And then the second question is just about Great American Outdoors Act. Why was that an important initiative for you and the organizations that you represent? Yeah, I can start with the, the second question. You know, I think it, it was the biggest, um, uh, you know, investment in a generation. It was something we'd been working on a long time to get LWCF through the finish line. And I think I started by saying ORR was really founded around infrastructure being an issue. And this was an infrastructure bill. So this was really something we pushed from our inception on. And so cool. I think we were only two and a half years old when this passed or two years. So like we were able to be a part of this conversation two years since formation and really shape it. My um, personal goal for our industry that we were able to be successful in was to ensure that it wasn't just the park service that got the funding, you know, coming from a Department of the Interior background. I'm very uh, aware of the Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, and Forest Service that don't always get the same love, have the same needs as the Park Service. So one of the things the recreation community was able to do was ensure that this wasn't just a bill for the rich parks that had infrastructure issues. This was a bill for all of the communities across the country that could benefit from, you know, jobs, workforce, projects, you know, anything. And and I and it did that. Um, the other really important part of this was when it happened. So in the summer of 2020, we're in the middle of an international pandemic, one of the most divisive elections of all time, maybe um, until 2024. Um, and it's the only thing that Congress did that summer. I remember I watched it on the Zoom because, you know, in the middle, you know, no one could be um, in the Capitol when it passed. And Senator Gardner, then uh, at the time, the sponsor of this, um, read a letter we had written with 150 CEOs from across the industry, you know, imploring um, Congress to pass this bill because so many people were getting outside. So many people were focusing on it. And it's the only thing they did because it was such a beacon of collaboration and cooperation. And to see this bill pass with flying colors of bipartisanship, bicameral, was a testament to how much the country needed the outdoors at this time and how much I think Congress saw the outdoors and outdoor recreation in particular as a win. Um, so there was just so much that happened there. I think since then, we've seen great projects um, off the ground. We've, we've obviously gotten down on the backlog uh, at all the agencies, and that's been great. And we're we're not seeing the constant um, sort of stealing from the recreation accounts that we used to see. Like not every infrastructure project is recreation. I understand that not every backlog project is recreation. But what it does is it fixes those water systems. It fixes those roads. It fixes those really unsexy things so that the recreation fee dollars that are going to those programs can stay in there and do the really cool things that we're all going to be impacted. So that's a little bit of, you know, the tangential um, pieces that we're proud of. And I'm hopeful that over the course of the next two years, I think as the, as the program uh, finishes its funding, at least on the legacy side, legacy restoration fund side, I'm hoping that we're just seeing awesome projects at the ground level that I don't need to know about every single one of them, but that the communities are really feeling the um, impact of. It's awesome. And then in terms of where, you know, did the uptick in outdoor recreation, has that sustained since the pandemic ha has, uh, has filtered out or, or what are you seeing from an industry level? 
Well, you're teeing up a great PSA for uh, Friday's data. We're getting our new data from the Department of Commerce on 2022. I, I think it's going to be the biggest yet. I, you know, obviously we haven't seen the numbers, but I am assuming 2022 will be our biggest year. So that shows that that was sustained. You know, 2023 is not the same outlook. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, inflation is a problem. Uh, it's a problem for people buying houses, but also boats and RVs and anything where you might want to take out a loan. Um, so that's a slow. We, we're having tariff issues and sort of supply chain issues. That's on the business side. On the consumer side, I think, you know, the world is getting back to what it was before COVID. And that means international trips. That means long work days. That means traveling for business. That means maybe being in the car more, less time with family. And those are the things that take people away from the outdoors. But we aren't seeing participation dip. Um, we're seeing, you know, the amount of trips people are taking obviously change because there's other demands for their time. But the participants who got outside from COVID found it as a solace or reprieve, you know, time to spend with friends and family. They're still doing that. And the coolest part is a lot of them decided that they're not just going to do it on the weekends. They're going to embed it in their daily life and they're going to move to communities. They're going to move themselves, their families or their businesses to communities where they have access every day. And that is this dramatic shift in where people are living. Um, when you see the exodus from San Francisco and New York City, look where they're going. They're going to Salt Lake. They're going to Bentonville, Arkansas that I oh. was just, well, they're going to West Virginia. And um, a cool study from Utah just showed, they surveyed um, tech companies. All these tech companies are moving to Utah. And they said, you know, what are, what's the number one reason why you're moving? 85% of the tech companies that have just moved, moved to Utah in the past two years said it's because of the access to the outdoors. It's recreation. Wow. Um, that's over family values in a state like Utah. So you're yeah. seeing like, wow, this is bigger than maybe just, oh, participation. Oh, we're buying our equipment. Oh, we got our fishing license. That stuff's really important. And we hope that that continues. But it's it's how people are oriented their lives um, has fundamentally changed. And I think we're going to continue to see the benefits of that for years to come. Yeah, I, I don't live in Salt Lake. I'd love to. But I did just move from the DFW area, which is, you know, it's nice, but it's flat and it's concrete. And there's that sort of stuff down to New Braunfels here in Texas, which is a river town. There's great, you know, fly fishing in the winter and tubing in the summer and all sorts of water sports and hiking and all that. So uh, I get that. I've seen friends moving for, for similar reasons to other places as well. So, um, well, good. We'll, we'll look for those numbers uh, at the end of the week. But uh, that that's really, you know, encouraging as well is that people are embedding it more into their lifestyle. Um, I, I want to just wrap up here and again, really appreciate your time, but I want to wrap up with some of our, our rapid fire questions. Um, and then we can, uh, we can finish there. Um, the first thing I'd love to know is just what's the most fulfilling part of your job and the day to day of it? Oh, wow. Well, I love my team. I think they're phenomenal people. I learn from them every day. So shout out to Chris, Ben and the Embreen and, and really all the teams of the associations that I work with. Everyone is smarter than me. And that is a great place to be. Um, I I think the other most fulfilling part is just surprising people. I love getting two people in a room that don't think they have a lot to work on together, whether it's politicians or conservation orgs or my business members, and showing them that there is a ton of work to do. And um, if my legacy is just that I convened two great minds to do something awesome, like that is um, a happy day for me. Awesome. And you mentioned the water is, is where you kind of, you know, get that 
that excitement from the outdoors. What is your favorite national park or, or, or some other, you know, place in nature that, that you, uh, if you had your choice anywhere that you'd be going to? You know, I'll give a shout out. My favorite national park is Glacier. That's pretty like, okay, nice. not, not a surprise. But I love the water there. It's super green and really yeah. special from the glacial runoff. So that does have a water connection. Um, I grew up in the Adirondacks. So huge shout out to the state park systems across the country, which mm -hmm. I actually think rival our national parks and need more love. And um, my favorite place locally is just my local park. It's called Lake Roland Park and it's got a lake. <laughs> so that's my, you know, a good run. But I can run there from my house and in a mile from my house in the city. Um, and we just moved out to Baltimore. I am at this amazing trail system um, with lakes and fountain mountain biking and just a, a lot of great stuff, kayaking. So it's pretty cool to be able to do that um, in the city. That's awesome. Uh, and then I always like to ask about book recommendations. It can be a classic that you read and recommend. It can be something new and interesting. But uh, if you had one book recommendation you'd give to our audience, what would that be? Well, I'm going to do three. <laughs> sure. Yeah, go because, for it. Because um, I don't get a lot of time to read. I'm, I'm a crazy, avid reader of um, news and papers and journal articles. I spend hours and hours doing that. But I was just had a baby and I got to meet the author last week in Bentonville of the book that the only book that I read when I was pregnant, um, Expecting um, Better. Emily Oster, and I got to meet her, and she talked about parenting and what businesses need to do to help um, parents, specifically women, um, and especially with the workforce, bringing women back. And I'm just obsessed with her. So Emily Oster, it's all data-driven. It's like all you need to know. Um, and then the back end of that is the one I'm reading now, which is called The Whole Brain Child, which is about um, raising healthy kids mentally, like what you do. But I think it's really important for people to understand how their brains work. I never knew any of this about my brain. And yep. it makes so much sense. And then my future book, um, The Power of Canes. I was with some tribal leaders out on BLM lands in New Mexico two weeks ago. And um, they were explaining the Pueblos and the history of the Pueblo communities and, you know, the landscapes. I mean, everything's intertwined. Um, and they said The Power of Canes explains it all. So that is on my list right now. Very good. Um do you have any parting words, any any kind of final message that you want to give our audience before we wrap up? No, I just hope that, uh, you know, we can find the um, outdoor activities that we have passion behind and bring that passion to, you know, advocating for those places to be protected, obviously, but also that those activities, you know, can continue to happen there and happen sustainably. And I think um, the more we have people getting outside, whatever that looks like for them, the better we're off we're going to be as, as I think, as, as a nation and people. And so it's, it's all good things, hopefully. And um, just appreciate you guys covering this topic and all you do, obviously. It's a great organization. So I hope everyone out there is supporting you as well. Of course. Jessica Turner from the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.